Welcome back to part two of our interview with Kenny Loggins. I am one of your co-hosts of Out of the Bane, Tom Nixon. Oh, it's pretty dry open. Uh, I'm John. I'm also a uh, first-rate second, no, second-rate first mate, something like that. Yeah, you can't even get that right. That's why I'm trying to keep it dry. I wasn't ready. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, because we are going to return to part two of our interview, which uh, spans another 30-plus minutes or so, so I'm excited to dive back in. Do you remember where we left off last week? Yes, at the end of episode one. That's true. And we were discussing, (laughs) we started to get into the book writing process with both Jason and uh, Kenny, um, talking about how they kind of cobbled together all of these, what probably had to be hundreds of stories, uh, into a book. And for me, that was... Uh, interesting both as a reader and as a, a writer of fiction and nonfiction. As I was thinking about the process, they talked about how things went back and forth a few times. I got to imagine, even from Kenny's standpoint, that the memories came back in waves. You know, he might start remembering the basic skeletal aspect of something that happened, but the more he sort of uh, maybe dumps it over to Jason and hears it back, then mo- more details maybe come forth. So I imagine it was kind of a, a lot of back and forth only because it just didn't all come out, you know, in, in one flow. It's not like I remember everything I did when I was 21 years old in great detail either, you know? Yeah, right. And uh, you were probably closer to an altar boy than apparently Kenny was, <laughs> as he reveals in the book. <laughs> well, even when we back, way back when we talked to Jay Graydon, he's like, well, when we were doing these things, we were going from session to session or track to track, and we we're setting up our rig and we we're playing it down. And on to the next thing, we weren't thinking long-term about legacy and let's bank this information. Let me remember what rig I used for my solo on such and such a song. You just weren't in that headspace at the time. Yeah, true. True. So yeah, as we rejoin here, we're going to be talking more about the book itself in addition to the context of Kenny's career, but uh, just one other observation on the book that I wonder if you had the same experience. It's like, I mean, I know we're, re- we're listening to or reading a nonfiction book, but it's interesting how, to me, there's characters in a story that come in and out of the story, like Darla character yeah. and the Ava character and, uh, you know, his his second wife is a character and they kind of, they have their own story arcs throughout the story, which is cool. Like you would a fiction book. And that's what made it so compelling. I thought agreed. And the very, the vast, um, range of individuals that were a part of his life, you know, the different personalities and how diverse they were. was also really interesting. And we kind of teased the, uh, cliffhanger of, you know, you're going to have to read the book to see how the Jimmy Messina character resolves and how that story arc resolves. Exactly. All right, well, with that as a backdrop, should we uh, jump back in? Right back in we go. I believe you have the microphone, sir. I do, thank you. I expected it to be a music book, which in a lot of ways it is. You tell a lot of music stories in it, but I was really surprised at how open and in sometimes even raw the stories were that you were willing to tell, Kenny, that um, that... You know, how, how was it digging all that stuff up? Was it therapeutic or was it difficult? No, uh, we, we we talked about it early on. And I, I felt that if I was going to differentiate my story, my life story from others, I had to drop in more deeply and be, be willing to be vulnerable because that's where a person becomes unique is how they how they really feel about things that are going on in their lives. If it's just the surface, then it could be anybody's story. Um, and so one of the things I realized early on was that Jason couldn't write this book without me. 
I had I had to be fully present. Uh, so every time he would write a chapter, I'd rewrite it and in, inject me into that chapter. What was I really feeling? What was I really thinking? Why did I do what I did? And um, and so the, the, many times when people ask me, what was it like? I say it was a cross between a deposition and therapy. <laughs> I was I was dropping into what I felt, and especially the spiritual kind of qualities of of what's happened in my life, like uh, rescuing Darla from suicide. Um, that things like that have got to come from me. He can't possibly, you know, project what that is. So, what I think we really successfully did was the balancing act between the two of us. That he brought his his approach to writing his his awareness of the chronology, his constant scrutiny for when something happened and how that applied to other things in my life that I just was not good. I don't get along with time. And so all the time <laughs> elements of my life just sort of merge. And so Jason really helped with the timeline, obviously. There, there, there was a lot of that of me going over the notes and saying, you know, Kenny, the way you described this couldn't have happened this way because this other thing happened first. And how are we going to square that? And that led to a lot of further digging. That's the deposition part. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as a reader though, it, it, it pretty much is a chronological timeline, but there's things that you mention as hints that are going to come up later that you cover. And then you yeah. go back to your, you know, the existing timeline, not like it jumps all over the place, but there's enough where it's kind of like, Ooh, that's going to be interesting to hear about later. Um, and again, I can't, recommend highly enough this book so as you're doing the information dump kenny what was the process like for you in terms of catharsis or just memory recall and then jason your response you got to capture this all and make sense of it all and put it in a chronology so kenny why don't you go first what was that process like for you to conjure everything up it's just as complicated to answer that question i bet that um one of the things i realized was a lot of my relationship with my parents that the more I had to explain it and talk about it and, and, and take a look at one of the things I realized that I'd never thought of before was that my mother was manic depressive. I'd never caught that. And I've been in therapy for many years. Um, but when I saw the ups and downs and the relationship that I had with her, my brother and I would always say, why don't we feel close to mom? And I, and, and, I began to really get that. So the, the therapy part of this book was trying to dissect my relationships with Jimmy Messina, another one, very convoluted relationship, very, you know, there are times where I gave him tremendous credit for the things I learned and being a mentor for me. And other times where I say, well, I, I didn't go with this and I didn't like this and this happened and this was, you know, very uncomfortable. And, and I know the thing you pointed out, for example, about rehearsals, I learned from him that rehearsal is essential. I know in my own body that if I don't rehearse, I can get my I can work myself into a nervous wreck. So by rehearsing, I get to where I feel comfortable with what's coming. Um, Jimmy, Jimmy, as I pointed out, loved to rehearse. And we literally rehearsed the first album for a year before we went in the studio. Um, and the guys who were not under salary at the time were just showing up day by day because of the promise of this gig. And um, and so their patience was amazing. I didn't get paid, of course, but because it was my gig. But, but right, right. you know, 
the the things like that that the the Jason can probably even bring more light to what I'm trying to say is that relationship with Jimmy was complex and still is. It, it was, and and the other thing I think we collectively unpacked was the maturation of that relationship. The, the how you interacted with Jimmy when you met him was very different than how you interacted with Jimmy toward the end of the run of Loggins and Messina is different than how you viewed him in the mid 2000s. And you were, you were coming into your own as an artist. He, he was already in his own as an artist. I mean, there, there, there's lots of, lots of levels to, to explore. And I think that's part of what makes the story so interesting. Yeah. I didn't expect uh, there to be as much time spent on the Loggins and Messina years as there was. So that was very revealing. There was a lot of things in there that I'm not, uh, we don't need to tell everybody because we want them to go and buy the book, but there was so much revealing information in there that I really enjoyed. And now there's an audible version of you reading this. Is that correct, Kenny? Yes, which I haven't heard yet because my my girlfriend's been listening to it and every now and then I'll hear it and go, oh, I don't like the sound of my voice. I'm not going to listen yeah. to that. Still, really, at this point, you don't like the sound <laughs> exactly. of your voice. Well, <laughs> it's, it's done, my, my speaking voice. It's served you well over the years. I was just going to say, John, real quick to interject. So I bought the book and then I was like, oh, there's an audio um, snippet I can listen to. The minute I heard Kenny telling his own story, I said, that's how I'm going to listen to it first. So that's what I did first and I'm reading it. The reason I brought it up is because I wondered if now once you've done the information dump and you've handed it all off to Jason and he's assembled it and you've approved as you go along. Now you've got to sit down and read this thing out loud. Was that sort of revelatory as you're having to say all this stuff now out loud again? Well, I read every chapter out loud as we wrote them. Oh, I wanted because the audio, the sound, the euphony is the word that I use, but I don't know if it's the public would be aware of it, but it's basically the lilt the sound, the timbre of the words, how they fit together. I wanted this the book to feel written, not just an interview that's been transcribed. Mm. We speak differently in an interview situation than we do write. So I wanted it to feel literate. And uh, so that's why I crossed off half the stuff he wrote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's not joking. You know, I, I, we did a bunch of interviews. I sent him a whole first draft. He rewrote that whole first draft. Um, I had to synthesize it and re-rewrite his whole first draft. And then we sat down. And like you said, Kenny is a collaborator, naturally. And I, as a journalist, am not. I sit in my office all alone and do my stuff. But we we sat for dozens, if not hundreds of hours while he read this manuscript out loud over Zoom. And we would stop every sentence or two, sometimes multiple times a sentence, and kind of figure out what wasn't striking him correctly. And, and the phrase he kept going to is, you know, let's just jam on this, which is obviously a musical term, but we really did a lot of jamming on this manuscript. Um, and I think it, it was a painstaking process. It was really, really time intensive, but I think it was completely worthwhile. I, like a lot of good stuff came out of, out of you reading that Kenny and us figuring out how it could, how it could fit together in the most appropriate way. Yeah. And it was always a compromise. There was always, and I feel 98% of the time, maybe 100, the compromise was for the better. Yeah, I agree. 
Mm. And I would say as a, a listener, someone who's listened to it all and rewrote, reread some of it, the you want to talk about it being personal, John, when you hear Kenny reading a line, like there's a line in there in the Leap of Faith chapter where you say something about something to the effect of, I think Leap of Faith is the work that I'm most proud of. And I want to tell you why. And that I want to tell you why is like, holy crap, Kenny Loggs is just telling me. So. And it just felt so personal and one-on-one. Um, which leads me to, I want to just talk a little bit more about that chapter because it marks sort of, I think what I read is, or listened to was a turning point in your emphasis on how you were going to approach your career at that given moment. And I'm thinking of the two words that you taped to the studio wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, you want me to say those two words? Of course, of course you do. Yeah. We'll strip (laughs) it out. (laughs) Well, my career up to that point had slowly evolved into where other people were writing the music and other people were producing the music and that everybody around me, my management included, wanted me to work with other writers. Like, why don't you let Diane Warren write a couple songs for you? You know, and I started to feel like I'd, I'd inadvertently pushed myself out of my own career. And um, the way Jason interpreted it was that I had seen myself originally because of and Messina as an album oriented artist and my favorite artists in the world were album oriented artists. And all of a sudden with all this emphasis on hit records that I was getting from Columbia, I felt like my albums were decreasing in attention and sales because all the attention was going to that hit single. And um, that wasn't who I wanted to be. So when I went in the studio to make Leap of Faith and I knew I had a good record, I knew what was happening in my life. I knew what was pouring out of me. And I, I put fuck radio on, on the entrance <laughs> to the studio. And we anything that sounded like an easy approach towards radio, I would change. One in particular was the duet with Sheryl Crow called I Would Do Anything. This was just before she became Sheryl Crow uh, as far as her mega popularity. And um and we originally cut it with drums. And when I listened to it and Terry, my engineer and co-producer and and uh, uh, Bobby Columbia, who was kind of my primary A&R guy at the time, he uh, they everybody went, oh, that sounds like the hit. And I stripped the drums out. But no, what I what I wanted was for the song to be perceived in a different way. And that meant when you take the drums out, it becomes a different animal. And then you're focused more on the singers and the words and less on the production. That's just an example of, you know, leaning away from the easy thing that would be. And it could have diverted the attention of the whole record. You know, right. that all of a sudden, oh, you know, Belagans had one hit from the record. That's well, that's yeah. here's a quick life hack to the dear listener of Out of the Bane uh, is to pick up the book and get to the Leap of Faith chapter, then get an album, a vinyl version of the Leap of Faith album, and use them as companion pieces. There one? I, I did this. So when I went back to reread the chapter, I wanted to hear what what did the real thing sound like as you're presenting it to Foster, and he's like, 
you're going through this right now, aren't you? And you denied it, of course, but it's like that just immerses you into the emotion that must've been pouring out of you. It's, it's amazing. It's addictive. Cool. Thank you. I, I, that's a good idea. John, that's a life hack for you, sir. Life hack for me. Well, um, my first and main instrument was drums. And so I had this drum question. Is, is that the album where you uh, were cutting verses and choruses with two yeah. different drummers yeah. at times? Okay. And it was a guy that sort of did an Al Green feel. I can't remember his name offhand. Herman Matthews. And then John Robinson cut the choruses. Is that right? We're going to go in a little deeper here on technology. So I hope your listeners are okay with that. Hey, we had Jay Graydon on, so they're, they've been prepared. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the wire choir. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> when I analyzed what Herman had played on the verses of If You Believe... It's a very Al Green kind of tom-tom approach. And when we we took a look at it, and I noticed a couple of things were out of time, so I started to pro-tool it. And then I noticed that it was out of time all the time. And I said, wait a minute, I think I'm, I'm cleaning this up too much, and that where he's putting the groove is not logical to the math that the, that the, the groove, the, the tom-tom bill on the floor tom is way behind the snare drum. How the hell did he do that? I don't know. It's Herman. It's the way he puts his groove. That's what makes one diff- drummer different from another. And I realized that was the best part of the verse was, was how he played the verse. And I, but I felt that the, I'd lost the song was not grooving right in the choruses. And so I brought in J.R. John Robinson from probably Rufus being his best known of the previous work. Um, but then John Jr. became uh, the pet drummer for for David Foster, Quincy, Quincy? any number. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But before that, I brought in Jr. and I've never heard anybody hit a drum harder than he hit him. <laughs> and luckily, it was an overdub where we didn't need isolation on anything, so we we used some of the room ambience to make it sound even bigger. And when he comes in on that chorus, that chorus takes off, and it's not that it speeds up. It's that JR had a way of putting that groove down where it felt like it leaned forward. If you believe in me, I will believe in what will be. We want the world to let me it, it is big. Yeah, it's huge sound. I'd never done that before. You know, I probably expected to re-record the whole song with jr and when i heard the contrast between herman and jr i said that's the song that's how it should go hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you feel like Leap of Faith then gave you the validation you needed to approach your career going forward in a similar manner to say F radio, 
F the business and I'm going to do it my way, write the songs that come out of me, which, you know, eventually leads you to writing a, a couple uh, and recording a couple of children's music. But did, was Leap of Faith that turn up, turning point? I think Leap of Faith was very much the turning point for me is believing in myself as my own producer um, and really focusing on writing songs that matter to me on a heart level and not just trying to write hit records. I think that whatever whatever thing was pushing me in that direction turned off at that time. It's like really literally fuck radio. It doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter. What matters is how many people am I touching myself and how many people am I reaching through that process? Hmm. So Tom was uh, alluding to the question early on about uh, picking your favorite child. And um, is there a song that, out of all of your catalog that you like to do live, is there one that especially still gets your mojo going when you perform it live? I'm mean, not to say that the others don't, but is there one that stands out? I mean, the obvious one would seem to be celebrate me home, but is that, what, what was your favorite one to really pull off live? Well, I try to, every song in the show tries to have be something that I, that I love or that matters to me. I made uh, some exceptions in the recent tour because the tour is based on all the songs that I had in movies. So, you know, the Caddyshack 2 is a song called Nobody's Fool. It's it's a good song. It's a good, you know, like 80s rocker. Oh, yeah. But it's not a heart song for me. Um, but, um, you know, Celebrate Me Home is an important song for me. I expect they'll play it at my funeral. Um, you've got um, uh, Footloose, which is always gets people up to dance. I can be playing a $1,000 a plate benefit with people in tuxedos and long dresses, and they're going to get up and dance. And because it's against the law to not. Danger Zone has become a really fun song for me to perform because the audience reaction is so fun. Um, hmm. But yeah, for me, the essence of what I believe in is Conviction of the Heart. Mm. So for me, Conviction of the Heart is a really important song. Yeah. I heard you do that one live. I saw you, uh, my brother and I had season tickets to a venue here in the Detroit area called Freedom Hill. We were like fourth row in the center. It was the year that you had your son uh, warming uh -huh. up for you. And uh, yeah, conviction of the heart just blew the doors off. But I sat there the whole night wondering why here I am in the fourth row and the seat on the aisle right in front of me is empty the whole night. And like, how could this person not show up? <laughs> I eventually figured it out when Encores came and you stood on that chair right in front of me or whether it was the last song and sang Celebrate Me Home and I'm just like <laughs> cranking up here trying to take pictures and you're singing no, over me. I, I hate, that was a seminal moment I hate moment to burst your bubble, but I didn't put that chair there. No way. No, that was not That was not a planned thing. That Whoa. just, I noticed, oh, wow. like you did, I noticed there was an empty chair and I figured I might as well use it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Who's the fool that left that seat open? I was going to ask you, Kenny, at the outset, if you recognize John from that night, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> that had to be what, like 2006, I think you said in the book, was that tour, right? Well, you got me on that. Jason knows I have no relationship to time. Yeah, that's right. You said it's your enemy or something <laughs> like that. Well, Jason and Kenny, what do you guys, when do you start working on the sequel? Um, how do we get another book out of you, Kenny? I need to live another 50 years so I can. <laughs> Yeah, there are a bunch more stories. 
I've been, you know, it's that process of, of remembering things, you know, that was started when we started the book, Jason, is, is still occasionally there where all of a sudden something will pop into my head that, oh, I forgot to mention this. And you know, it's like, do I write it down or do I just push it away and go, no, I'm not going there again. It's like you said, it was not an easy process. I'm not sure I'm eager to ever do it again. And, and there were a number of, of really good stories that, for whatever reason, be they redundant to, to other stories or just somehow didn't fit into the narrative, just disrupted things too much that we didn't include. So, you know, if you, if you ever want to write an ebook as a supplement to this, this might, might be a good project a couple of years down the road. I think, I think maybe sooner than later before I forget those stories. <laughs> well, you always have your trusty little handheld recorder. Yeah, it's called a phone. <laughs> phone, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, this has been amazing. Uh, we really appreciate you both coming on. Everyone needs to go out and buy this book, Still All Right, a memoir by Kenny Loggins. It's so good. Listen to it once, read it once, have your companion pieces with the records right next to you. Because I did that the entire timeline, by the way. I had to pause and catch up through all the Loggins and Messina records. I'm like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I thought it would have been a good thing if we'd had the ebook where you could hit a link and hear a piece of that song. Ooh, yes, perfect. But I guess that, that costs a lot to make that happen. All right, and uh, Jason, we're going to welcome you back if you want to ever talk about the making of a memoir. We can we'll have you both back if you want to come back. But there's more to ask, more to talk about, and we'd love to have you both back. Absolutely, sure. And I know that you communicate regularly with your audience. I think all twelve of them. <laughs> Yeah, we probably have questions of their own. So, you know, I'm open to that, too. Well, my parents are listening now, so it's up to 14. <laughs> yeah, Tom said we're breaking records yeah. every week. So we're up to we got to yeah. be close to 20. Mention that you listen to the vinyl on Leap of Faith. Leap of Faith did not come out in a vinyl. Uh, yeah, I know. I tried to catch yeah. him on that. I know. No, <laughs> I didn't listen to it on vinyl. That was my recommendation. I am not the uh, vinyl file that my brother here is. It was the first record that, that I made that didn't come out in vinyl. As far as I know. Well, while I have you, that leads to another question. Do you have a personal preference? Because you're doing more producing yourself now than you did back in what we would call the heyday of the late 70s, early 80s. Do you have a preference for the you know the digital recording tools and the pro tools and all that stuff that can make it sound perfect versus what you used to have to pull off as an artist with the limitations of technology back then? Well, I've been a touring artist since 71. And so my hearing is not what it used to be. I don't hear the nuances between digital and analog that younger engineers do. So I leave that up to them based on, you know, what I'm going to do. But, you know, nowadays so much recording is being done at home without an engineer that a friend of mine, CJ Vanston refers to it as 180 pounds of meat in the way of your recording. <laughs> uh, he prefers to work without one. Um, you know, that I, I really don't hear the difference, but I know that many people do. And the, the, the so-called warmth of analog um, is is how the waveform is is hitting the vinyl. What about the, just the ability to have unlimited tracks, quantizing, autotune, all of that stuff that you could do now, but you had to nail and did back in the day? Any difference in your mind? Well, I was one of the first artists to record on the on the Mitsubishi 32-track digital and that we had we had to keep the face of that machine open because it was screwing up every day. You'd find it snatting. It would hit little, literally clicks on your track where it would drop out for a fraction of a second. Um, so it was sometimes difficult to work with. 
Um, but I liked the option to be able to link up two 32 tracks and have 64 tracks. You know, <laughs> it's like, wow, that was a big deal back then. Now, now the, the technology approach pro tools just keeps getting better and better. Um, they hear the criticisms. They, the recording process with pro tools is so much easier. Yeah. So, you know, I, I lean towards that process. Cool. John, anything else? I'd go on forever, so we could we could save that for another time, possibly. But uh, like almost like what Jason said, there's so much material that I had a difficult time refining it down to two pages yeah. worth of questions. So uh, it's a great book. It's an amazing read. It gives you um, you get information the behind the scenes how things were done, but you also get gut into the emotion of why this song says what it says. It's not just, oh, we recorded it, we put this mic up, we were in this room. It get to the guts of why you wrote the song and what it all means. And there's something for everybody in that book. Let me ask you a question. In the process of of me explaining what that song meant to me, did I devalue or strip away your interpretation of the song, how it relates to you and your life? No. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. I always thought this is it was a love song, you know, and then I hear what it's about and I'm like, it just made it that much more important, not only to you because it's so personal, but to me. And I start thinking about my loved ones and if they're ever given up, I'm not going to let them give up. I might play them that song as a matter of fact. So it, it gives me a deeper connection to the music, not the other way around. I would say I came away with just a little bit of a different view of the Loggins and Messina years because there's some songs in there that you felt that you weren't all fond of how they may have come out, like my music or things like that, that it wasn't deep enough for you. God knows that I love And sometimes those are the songs that I really loved. And then sometimes I like a real simple song. So now when it comes on, I start thinking about that, you know. But uh, I always loved the, the sophisticated stuff with the horns. And you guys would go off into these jam areas and stuff. I, I thought it was very progressive stuff. Yeah, for the thank time. you. Yeah, no, I, I debated whether or not to be honest about the songs I didn't like. Because I knew that that, that could influence the future interpretation of of towards that yeah. song but i also felt like wait a minute you know just tell the truth i, I, I didn't really truth. like that song yeah. and it was a duet gig a duo gig and jimmy had a strong say in that you know like i said the joke was well you know jimmy thinks one thing i think the opposite let's leave it up to the producer <laughs> oh that's jimmy <laughs> <laughs> that's right two out of three yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the truth is always better. That's my my takeaway. I'd rather know than not know. But yeah, it does change the way I hear some of the stuff. But that's good. It refreshes yeah. it for me. You know? When I asked, I sent the chapters with the Loggins and Messina to Jimmy early on. And I know Jimmy is, was always very protective of the image of Loggins and Messina. And mm-hmm. I said, what do you think? And he said, he said, I, I think it's time to tell the truth. Oh, good. Wow. I was impressed. <laughs> That's part of what I was thinking the whole time I was reading this. Like, does, I wonder what Jimmy thinks about this, quote, truth coming out. And I was out, dying right? to get to the point where it's like, does Kenny ever reveal what the relationship is like today? So I wanted to know, like, is this a friendly thing? And the fact that you were able to send him the chapters, it's at least that cordial. So that was cool. Well, you know, I think, I think one of the reasons Jimmy was okay with it, even though there are some criticisms there, 
is because it was not only honest, but it was honest from the perspective of a 22 year old Kenny Loggins, mm. right? With, with right. open acknowledgement that things change over the years. Um, and, and that evolution is, uh, elucidated in future chapters, right? Since, since you've had all these reunions, you keep interacting with Messina over the years and, and it's, it's easier to, to talk about how you view him now presently um in in current terms and you could you could easily be critical of him back then because you were a different person you had different needs yeah and you qualify what you learned from him you know such as the layering and the arranging and things like that and so you mean even did that earlier in this interview so i think once you balance it with that that's important cool thank you and I'm just two last things. And as I was just going to add to the Messina thing, as a pure just storytelling, uh, t- the way that story resolves is like perfect and satisfying as a reader. And yep. then going back to the introduction, mm-hmm. just to tease it for anyone who needs further impetus to go buy the book, the the book opens with an introduction that is not to be skipped because it's the story that takes these twists and turns that just ends up in a miracle. And um, knowing what that project became, Leap of Faith, makes it even. More. I told Tom, I read the prologue and I said, I don't need to read anymore. That's enough. That's a big enough bite of the cherry there that I'm yeah. going to be chewing for months. Uh-huh. Awesome. Just awesome. I have to give credit to Jason on that one because when, when I told him the story, he said, this is the opening of the book. Yeah. Oh, man. Great. Well, thanks again, I Kenny. Wanted, I, I wanted to talk about my prostate, but he didn't think that was a... <laughs> again, that's that's ebook fodder for, for the future. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Click this link for no. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, well, we hope that's not a big story either. So, all right, all right. Well, all right before we go where we shouldn't, uh, thank you again, Kenny. Thank you again, Jason. Um, everyone, go out and buy the book, and we'll uh, hope to talk to you guys again soon. All right, thank you. Well, here we are at the end of part two. Did I hear correctly that there may be a part three in the offing? He did. He's, he's well, almost part three and maybe part four because he, uh, he he said he was interested in hearing questions from our audience, and I know there would be a few of those. And I also wonder if we could down the road do a um, track by track on Leap of Faith. Ooh, as close as that album is to his heart, I'll bet you Kenny would want to come on and talk us through that. Ooh, I'd be down for that. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's throw it out there. I had a couple interesting takeaways from that. You know, I, first of all, I wasn't ready for him to start interviewing us, asking <laughs> us questions. <laughs> that uh, I thought I was going to be. I have a question for you. Can I be done now? I know. <laughs> is it is it an hour yet? Yeah. Um, but also, uh, I thought it was kind of funny that he uh, called out on you about the uh, vinyl thing regarding yes. leap of faith, and you know. I didn't want to have to do this. I really, really hate to have to do this, Uh-oh. but I got to do it. Based on further review, there were a few final issues of Kenny Loggins' Leap of Faith. Therefore, we return to the original line of scrimmage. The points come off the board, and we will replay third down. There is vinyl. Wait, there is? There is. So the flag is on Kenny. Whoa! Nice. So you could do my dream come true, put on the vinyl, open the book, and have companion pieces after all. Yeah, it turns out that those um, those releases were only in some parts of Europe and South America, so it's very possible you, n- you never knew about them. I don't think they're bootlegs, because they are listed as Columbia, and they are in those areas that probably never quickly you know, gave up on vinyls quickly as like the United States yeah, did. Yeah, so. interesting. Ah. 
Ooh, gimme, gimme, gimme. So the flag. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, hmm. not only a flag, but put a pin in that because that's going to become okay. more relevant in the lightning round. So, but I'm going to let you go first because I went first in episode one. So here you are. Okay. I have a uh, one that is a tie-in. This is a definite tie-in. We uh, talked a while back about a Jim Messina song, and I have another Messina song that is from the 1981 album just called Messina. This is for my Float Your Boat. It kind of asks a similar question to when we talked about that other Messina track. It also was similar to that Doobie Brothers track, Rio. So it's got a little bit of a Latin jazz influence. Uh, It's not just Latin music, but it's got Latin jazz influence in there. So there's still that sophistication of jazz with a decided Latin flavor. Is there room for this in your particular umbrella of Yacht Rock? And this is from, as I said, 1981. It's called Loving You Every Minute. Just kidding you were I look at what it costs to live Oh, I can't believe my eyes But I know that we are not alone The whole world is feeding the tune And I'm going to do the best I can And while I'm here with you I'm going to be loving baby So I don't, I know it's We're not supposed to get fooled by Latin or island vibe But to me that's Latin jazz So there's a lot more jazz in that Than just, uh, you know, like Mexican, uh, you know, Herb Alpert Or something like that <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say yes to that one. Um, not because I think it's technically Yacht Rock, but because I think it fits. So it's probably closer to an off the map that I would sneak in uh, aboard the boat. Yeah. But um, for the reasons you stated, yeah. What's interesting, put a pin in that as well, because, you know, how, so we've talked about how the Loggins and Messina pair break up. And then, mm-hmm. you know, eventually Kenny gets so, quote unquote, yachty. And then we hear some Jim Messina stuff that he gets really yachty. <laughs> Right, and then before yeah, they that, couldn't come together on it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in this, sounds like it could come right off of "Celebrate Me Home," that tune. And so I'm going to come back to that because I, okay, further down the line, have a song that I think sounds uh, similar as they say. All right, then uh, let's hear your float your boat re- okay, recommendation. So, uh, for my float the boat, I'm going right there. I, I know the the intellectual answer, but uh, the name of the okay. book is still all right. And I'm going to ask you about "I'm All Right." So the reason I'm asking you is because um, Sirius XM always played that, right? And I always felt like "Mm, it doesn't even fit in the context of what Sirius XM is doing in terms of Yacht Rock. But it's like, I like the song so much, I'm going to break their rules as well and put it on my playlist. So there it sits. Um, So where do you sit on that song in terms of its yachtiness? Oh, I don't hear yachtiness at all. Um, it's such a fun song. I can't get the gopher out of my head, though, so I can't even <laughs> listen to that song for what it is, unfortunately. Well, I guess it is what it is, though. It was written for that, but um, it reminds me a lot of the, what's the um, the Lindsey Buckingham song from Vacation? Uh, kind of reminds me of that. Oh, um, Holiday Road? Holiday Road, yeah. In yeah. a way that it's a super fun song. People tend to kind of want to throw that in to the Yacht Rock canon because of maybe the novelty nature of it, but it doesn't really fit. You know what I never understood in the book about the song when he talks about how he had to assemble a band and he wanted a very rudimentary um, 
rhythm section to lay yeah. down a very oh, basic yeah. part. Yeah. I wonder how then that translated to what Tris laid down in the studio, because it wasn't Tris that he brought in. Right, because Tris talked about he and the bass player, I don't remember who it was at the time, if it was still George or if it had been Vernon, but they were uh, wanting to model something after... Fleetwood Mac's go your own way sort of groove with the toms mm. and all that stuff. And that's how that evolved. But I do wonder what the original, like you say, demo rudimentary sound would have been like. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, cool. Well, then, is it my turn to... Uh, to bury a treasure, yeah. To unbury or, a treasure. No, unbury, yes. Yes. That's right. um, I want to have permission to at least mention two songs here, because one is the one I wanted to use for this, but okay. we've already covered it. Uh, previously on the podcast, so it's already in the playlist. But did you find it interesting at all that there was no mention? He talks about his dad, his brothers. He talks about, you know, obviously every relationship he ever had. But no mention of David Loggins at all? None. Yeah, So that's right. I don't know why that was. If Maybe there's just not an interesting story to tell there. Or Right. I kept um, expecting it to come up. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Well, so just even though it's unorthodox, play a little of an actual Yachty song by David Loggins and not Please Come to Boston. Here's a little of uh, If I Had My Wish Tonight. All right. All right. So but that's not it. So that's you buried treasure? No, 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 no. Wait. I told you, it's unorthodox. I wanted to do okay. two because that's the one I wanted to use. But So my actual buried treasure is the aforementioned song from Celebrate Me Home, which mm-hmm. kind of has a vibe for that Messina tune you just oh, played. Okay. And that is I've Got the Melody, which you may remember has a parenthetical title, which is my bane, Deep Inside Me. I got the melody deep in my heart. I can sing it Do you have any uh, the personnel written down for that one? I do not. But I wonder if that's uh, Patty Austin singing with him, because I was uh, just noticing as I was looking that up that she wrote the song. Oh, really? So I wonder if she's singing on that. But it does have, you can hear some of the jazz influence from Bob James and Phil Ramone producing that, though, even though it's not a, quote, jazzy track. No, but, you know, in the book, he mentions that he wanted to, you in this album, he wanted to start exploring this R&B sound he was hearing, yeah. you know, and yeah. feeling, as you definitely get some of the precursors to yacht you've got some funky bass you've got some horns you've got some electric piano etc etc which would certainly explain you know grabbing a patty austin tune so yeah and as uh you were mentioning that i looked it up it was written by patty austin Mm, is she singing on it uh i gotta look up everything yes she is yep okay all right well i guess i have a buried treasure that also has a uh a Yacht Rock tie-in, even though it's not really a Yachty song. A while back, way back, there was um, we talked about a couple of Jack Wagner songs, and you know how big of a fan I am of his first three albums. And then I recently went back and listened to them again and pulled out the actual liner notes and started going through them. And remember, I sent you a text said, you will not believe, even though I knew it was a West Coast record, I said, you will not believe the names on this thing. And this was his second record, the one I'm looking at, um, and here's some of the musicians on this album in general. Diane Warren, Donny Osmond, uh, hmm. Greg Fillingaines, Jay Winding, Jay Graydon, Jeff Lorber, Nathan East, Paulina DaCosta. It's on Quincy Jones's label. The song I'm picking was written by Cliff Magnus and Glenn Ballard. And, of course, 
it didn't mean anything to me at the time because I didn't, didn't know anything about Yacht Rock way, way back when, right? Right. But this is a duet Still with don't. one Valerie Carter. And this is called Love Can Take Us All the Way. So it's post-yacht sounding, 808 drum machine in there, but it does have Valerie Carter and some of that personnel. So it's mm. it's worthy to have as part of your rotation. Yeah, and I would just say in general, because of all of that personnel on all three records, like just Jack Wagner himself is sort of a buried treasure. Yeah. It, yeah. You, you'd be inclined to dismiss it as, you know, pretty boy on the soap operas, yuckety yuck, whatever. Yep. They were trying to yep. make a teen idol, but there's good music in there. Well, I cool. mean, he's on three records from Quincy's label, so, I mean, there's some pedigree there. Come on. Yeah. And didn't we call Glenn Ballard sort of like David Foster light? Kind of, yeah. I don't want him to hear you say that, but maybe okay. maybe he will. Okay. Where does that put us? That puts us to off the map, right? It does. All right. Have well, you? I have another Jack Wagner song because I had uh, two of these in mind. This one ties to the previous one because it is a duet also with Sita Garrett, and she is a R&B singer, a Quincy Jones sort of prodigy, never quite got over the hump as a solo artist, but did tons of backup work. Guitar player on this one is Dan Huff. How do you like that? Mm. Uh, you'll like this. It's produced, arranged by... Keyboards, drum machine, and backing vocals from Robbie Buchanan. Didn't he send you a birthday wish? He did, yes. Yes, he did. This, wow. And it's written by Jack Wagner, Michael Alemania, and Marcel East. So that's Nathan East's brother. And this is called Back Home Again. So technically, it's not a duet. She does sing on there and kind of steps out a little bit later on in the bridge. But uh, still, 1987 from his uh, Don't Quit Your Day Job album, which is an ironic title for him. <laughs> yeah. Really. <laughs> so back home again. Could that be the metaphorical sequel to Celebrate Me Home? Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. I'll take it. That's I'm Italian. hearing a lot of 1987 in that one, though. There is a lot of 1987, uh, but there's a lot of Dan Huff in there, too, so he kind of saves it for me. I've heard enough synth bass today to last me for an entire week of uh, Got Rock. Well, well, good. We don't do another episode for another week, so. Oh, that, that'll work. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, um, so I'm going to unpin what I pinned earlier, and that is uh, Leap of Faith. So I had to choose my off the map from that Leap of Faith album. You mentioned, or you might remember last week, I told Kenny I could take a whole book on Leap of Faith. Right. There's so many stories in there, and he's, he walks you through how the it tells a, a story in a, within a story because it starts, he's writing songs about how he realizes his marriage is breaking up. And by the end of it, he's writing songs because he's found a new relationship. And he's, right. you know, so it's, take that weird. Here's something he wrote in the middle. 
uh, that just gave me chills when I was reading about it in the uh, the book because it's a, a letter essentially that he's writing to his kids, trying to explain what's going on with the divorce, and how he wants them to grow up understanding what love truly is, not what your parents tried to make you believe it was, um, which gives me chills in and of itself. But then the story when he brings this to to um, to Foster or Foz as he calls him. Yeah. And David right away figures out that it's autobiographical, yep, uh, autobiographical, yep. sorry, but chills abound. So this is just a beautiful production. It's Kenny's foray into production. Here's the real thing off Leap of Faith. I for you and the boys because love teach you joy, not and your mama and daddy trying to show you I did it for you and for me and because I still believe I've been just diving back into that album. I remember when this album came out and the uh, radio wanted to play Cody's song because it was a, him writing about his son. But uh, I think they missed the boat on a few others that could have been hits, even though I know he wasn't going for hits. I think he right. uh, there was so much good stuff on that record. So Didn't he say that AC uh, Radio did pick up some of this stuff, though? In, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, a condition of the heart certainly did. Yeah, yep. With another interesting story, conviction of the heart. Yeah, excuse me. Another interesting story about that song too, which I won't get into. But read the book and and get all these little ditties for yourself, right? Yeah, buy the book, read the book, let Kenny read it to you. Exactly. So that whole album, though, just you know, for his first time producing, and you're a producer, aren't there some sweet sounds in there? We've are, we've crossed over the Rubicon now. Everything's digital and Pro Tools and stuff yes. like that. So it's a different sound than Yacht Rock, but it's very beautifully recorded. Yeah, it features heavily that um, acoustic electric guitar, you know, the plugged-in acoustic sound. Mm-hmm. That, that That's like the main staple on that album, but it's really well recorded. Really yeah. love it. Yeah. Cool. Well, like you said, maybe he will come back and tell us all the stories behind it. We would certainly love that. I would love to hear that. Yeah. All well, right. Well, that's it for our Kenny Loggins episode. To be continued, hopefully we'll do another yep. one. Um, next week, we are going to be a little more nautical, but certainly just as nice. Very nice. Yes. And well, until then, right? Uh, how nautical can we get? Uh, well, ahoy. Palloy. Who's right? Who's right?